Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. And today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Matthew. We're still in chapter 22, this time verses 15 through 21. This is, again, I mean, most of the Gospel is very familiar to us, but this one is particularly familiar to us, basically as Americans, because we have relished and rejoiced in uh, basically a false interpretation of this Gospel. And so it becomes very important for us. But basically, the Pharisees, and in this case, the Pharisees are now trying to, and the Herodians, an odd combination, but it means that it's probably close to Passover time for Herod Antipas is, is in Jerusalem for the Passover. So it's plausible that his agents were active in the crowds also. The Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders, all of those have been losing argument after argument after argument to the Lord ever since he gave them the dilemma of what is the origin of John the Baptist. And then he talks about the vineyard, and then he talks about the sons who would and wouldn't, and then he talks about coming to the banquet and, and so forth. And in every case, there's a rejection and then an acceptance of a new group. And they are forced by the very nature of the parable to continually condemn themselves in order to save face with the crowd. So now they figure, now they're going to get him. Now it's going to be, he's not going to be able to wiggle out of this one. And so what they do is they pick a truly moral issue of the day, not a hypothetical. There was a great deal of consternation and a great deal of confusion in ancient Palestine about what was their relationship with the occupying forces of the Roman Empire. Um, it wasn't like, you know, Rome marched in and took over Jerusalem. That isn't what happened. Palestine was in absolute bloody anarchy and chaos. And it was the leaders and the chief priests of the Jewish people who invited the Roman Empire to come in and to govern them because they were unable to govern themselves. At the same time, the Roman Empire did not reflect all of the values of the covenant. And as a matter of fact, as time went on and the emperor became increasingly convinced that he was God, it became basically then increasingly a tension between their obedience to the living God who revealed himself in the covenant and obedience to the God of the overlords who was the emperor of Rome. And so this idea then of being amenable to Roman occupation became increasingly a moral issue for the Hebrews of Palestine and also, of course, as we know, for the early Christians. So that basically then, in this volatile situation, dealing with an issue that everyday people grappled with, they figured that at last they had Jesus where they could do to him what he had been doing to them in the arguments. And so they sent their disciples to him together with the Herodians and to ask, Master, we know that you are an honest man and you teach the way of God in an honest way. And so they basically then flatter him and say, yeah, we acknowledge that you, uh, you speak honestly about the Lord of the covenant, but we also know from your boldness that you are not afraid of anyone. And so it's kind of like drawing him into a false sense of trust because a man's rank means nothing to you. 
And so it's a typical thing, you know, if you, if you, if you want to get somebody to compromise themselves, the best way to do it is to flatter them, because then they don't want to squander the flattery by taking a strong stance against what you want to do. And you think about it, and, and it's a temptation for all of us all the time. If someone flatters us, then we don't want to be confrontational. And so they said, so, this being said, you being, you know, the great person that you are, what's your opinion? We're honestly asking you an opinion, they say. Is it permissible to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And that was the moral dilemma of the age. Now, what is Jesus going to do? If Jesus says, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then he is uh, answering the question, yes, it's, it's all right to pay obeisance to the overlords, in which case he violates the moral conscience of the vast majority of the people. If he says, no, it is not legitimate to do that, then they immediately can go to the Romans and denounce him as for sedition, for treason, for it is then that he could be labeled as an insurrectionist for opposing the legitimate payment of taxes to the Roman Empire. And so Jesus, however, becomes aware of their malice, and he says to them, you hypocrites, why did you set this trap for me? So he's not taken in, he's not sucked in by their flattery. He knows exactly what they're doing. He knows that they're laying a trap for him and they're doing it, you know, with sugar-coated. Um, but nevertheless, they, they want him to end up in a compromised position. So he just simply says, let me see the money you pay tax with. And they handed him a denarius, and he said, whose head is this? Whose name? Caesar's, they replied. And he said to them, very well, give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. Now, this is where we fall into our own trap of saying, well, now, this is the New Testament theology of the relationship between church and state. No, it is not. It has, there is no theology of church and state in the New Testament. And, and it becomes a chronic and a constant issue all the way through, even unto the present day. We know that under the heel of an oppressive, immoral government, what is a Christian to do? We face that all the time with the radical anti-life postures of our federal government, of our courts, and so forth. What is our response to that? It's easy to say, well, we simply, you know, obey the laws of the state, but then, you know, we can go to church and pray as we want to pray, which means that multiple numbers of Catholics vote for the immorality of the political powers that be versus the authenticity and the integrity of the human person as a creature of God. It happens all the time. When we talk about, for instance, in this country, on serious moral issues, the Catholic vote, what do we find? We find it split most of the time, somewhere around the 50s, one way or the other. And so the issue that they present to Jesus here is an issue that Christianity has faced ever since. And we have to deal with it, not with, the, not with the simplicity of saying, well, you know, the secular government had said whatever they do is okay for them, and then, you know, but I, I'll, I'll do this privately. And, you know, that doesn't work, really, and it isn't in the spirit of this at all. First of all, the coin that Jesus takes 
has the image of Caesar on the coin. First of all, as we know, in ancient, the ancient Near East, and even in the contemporary Near East, images are forbidden. Images of any kind are forbidden. Images are in some way, shape, or form idolatrous. And therefore, for us even, for Jesus say, saying, for you even to keep a Roman coin is basically immoral because what you're doing is you're harboring images that the first commandment of the Ten Commandments forbids graven images. And so basically he said, give it back where it came from. Get rid of it. Give it back where it came from. And then he says, but that has nothing to do with what belongs to God, because our minds and our hearts and our lives belong to the Lord in the covenant. And we are to live that covenant no matter what the consequences of it might be. And we watch this happen. If this were a simple theology of church and state, then the whole idea of the martyrdom of the early Christians makes no sense. Because if they were to give to, you know, if they were to offer sacrifice to Caesar, then that's giving to Caesar what Caesar's. And that's, that's not what it means. What it means is you basically become not caught up in the morality of secular society. It means that secular society is not in any way have a claim over the inner reality of the human person. That, you know, we can certainly be patriotic, and this is something where there was rampant anti-Catholicism in this country in the 1950s. After the war, there was a great resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan and so forth, because in the wave of patriotism, Catholics were still seen as uh, having divided loyalties between a foreign power and the American government. And even when John Kennedy ran for president in 1960, you know, it was all of the rumors were going around, you know, well, he's going to invite the Pope to come to the United States. He's subservient to the Pope and all of this kind of thing, trying to make out the fact that giving to God what is God's is somehow or other an act of sedition and an act of treason. It's bizarre. And it's what ha happens when we get a false interpretation of this gospel. Because the separation of church and state, what is the separation of church and state, very honestly? Does it mean that our institutions don't intermingle? Well, it does mean that. Does it mean that we have to, um, in any way, shape, or form, conform to the immoral legislation of a secular government that has abandoned a notion of basically even a higher power, of even a higher being? which we find rampant within contemporary society. Do we therefore owe allegiance to that? And the answer is no. Do we owe allegiance to the secular powers of our nation when they legislate contrary to the, the morality that is established within the very nature of the human person by the Creator himself? No, we do not have to honor those things. There is a sense, of course, of prudence. Do you want to, you know, do you want to end up in prison? Well, we find, for instance, even people now who protest abortion are, are convicted of crimes and sent to prison in this country. Certainly, were, are they wrong? Should they have acquiesced to the civil authorities, to the civil power? Should they have done what the secular government told them to do instead of advocating for the life of children? One has to ask oneself those questions in this modern milieu, in this modern environment. But let us not naively then, whatever the issues are, 
Let us not naively then take this gospel simply as kind of a definitive statement about the relationship between church and state. Jesus is saying you have you have idolatrous pagan items in your in your possession. Give them back where they came from. Get rid of them. Render to God what belongs to God. In other words, give yourself personally, your inner self, your heart, your soul, your mind. Follow the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's what we render to God. We render to God our loyalty, our primary loyalty to him. We are primarily loyal to him over and above any patriotism which we have. And that when, in fact, our government, which for a long while, there is an an interesting book by Samuel Carter, a, a law professor from Yale, called The Culture of Disbelief in which he traces um, the materiality of the development of the Enlightenment document of which is our American Constitution, and shows how the moral force, particularly of Methodism, um, had a profound influence on the interpretation of that materialistic document throughout the 19th and some of the early parts of the 20th century. But how when religion became kind of eviscerated after the Second World War, that the original materialism of the Constitution began to surface, and we could see that very clearly if we follow the constitutional development of the arguments which eventually led to Roe v. Wade, that the idea of the Lockean idea of private property became fundamental um, without any moral constraints on it at all, became fundamental to the Roe v. Wade decision to where I believe it was Justice Brennan who said, or, or Douglas, one of the two, who said that decision was based on a penumbra of privacy, which is the allusion to the idea of private property, self-ownership, and lock. So basically, the same arguments that were used for Roe v. Wade were the very same arguments that were used to defend slavery, the ownership of that which is dependent upon you. And that's an enlightenment, a materialistic enlightenment uh, concept, independent and separate from the idea of who is the human person. It was, in fact, in this country, in our culture, Methodism, which kind of sustained the sense of the dignity of the human person over and against the materialism of the Enlightenment Constitution. And this is, this is Carter's argument, and I, and I think if you go back historically, you'll find it's a very responsible argument, a very viable intellectual argument. Let us take, then, not just the abortion issue, which we face today, with a government that is radically anti-life. We could go back and guard ourselves from political uh, partisanship in the contemporary age and, and argue the slavery issue. Was it a moral, legitimate thing, since, since it was um, tolerated by federal law? Was it a moral, legitimate thing for us to tolerate and to sustain slavery? Um, because after all, that was the law of the land. And, uh, and if we render to Caesar, and rendering to Caesar is what the government claims as its own, then um, should we have then been pro-slavery? Unfortunately, many were. And this is the great example of a moral failure. 
For instance, we know that the Maryland Jesuits owned slaves. We know that the Kentucky Dominicans owned slaves. We know that our schools were, were segregated in the South up until 1956 when Archbishop Rommel demanded integration and faced a great uproar um, with, within the society. And this was, you know, this was before the normal integration movements in the South under that were resisted by Wallace and Faubus and so forth. So basically, this idea of a neat division between church and state is, is nothing to do with the New Testament. And certainly we see, for instance, in the early New England settlements of the United States, the attempt to so Christianize and so just so religionize the secular government that there would be no conflict between the two. And so you could render to Caesar and to God at the same time the same loyalty. We call that theocracy. That wasn't exactly, we did not have a theocracy in New England, but we did have a government that was composed of, of the elect. And so while it wasn't the preachers that ran it, it was those who were in line and harmonious with the preachers who did run it. And so it was a secular government that functioned also basically as an administrative arm of the church. That, however, changes. And that was the same kind of fallacy that we tended to live with in the Middle Ages between Catholicism and the monarchs of the Middle Ages. It led us also into kind of a disintegration of Catholicism where it lasted up into the 20th century, such as in Quebec and, and Ireland and Belgium and places like that, where there was just a total absolute collapse and apostasy of the majority of the people. The thing is, it's a much, much more complicated issue than just, oh, this is the, you know, the typical, this is division between church and state. No, it is not. It is giving to the pagan realm what the pagan realm, what belongs to it and does not belong to us, and yet turning our whole selves, our whole minds, our whole lives, and everything toward, toward faith, fidelity to the living God. And if we go back and look again at this gospel from the very beginning, and we follow this thread that has been going on in the gospel from the very beginning, we see that we're getting closer and closer, Jesus is getting closer and closer to the passion in these Gospels. For he has now chosen, and he chose to do so particularly in that confrontation with them over who is John the Baptist. When they began to question his authority, and so then he asked them under whose authority John functioned, he put them in an impossible situation. And as we said at the beginning of this reflection, he continued that defeating them in argument after argument after argument, causing them to condemn themselves and every time until they get terribly sick of it. And so they think now finally we have the opportunity to put him in his place. And Jesus, of course, does not allow them to do that any more than he allowed them to do it when they challenged his authority. But he comes up with not a simple thing. He comes up with a response to a very complex moral issue. Israel invited the Romans in to Palestine. What do they owe them? Well, they owe them what's theirs. And they pay in pagan currency for protection and for orderliness within their society. In other words, you know, they have hired basically an empire to govern them because they could not govern themselves. We, we find in the, in the whole turmoil, continuing turmoil of the Middle East, that this has become a chronic issue and tragically explodes into horrors every once in a while, the same kind of anarchy. They brought in to hire a government that could bring some kind of good order into their own society. And in doing so, then, what is their obligation to that government? 
Well, the obligation became more intense the more the emperor began to become convinced that he was a god. So that basically it was creating now not, they're not hiring protection anymore. Now they're paying tribute to someone who denies the, the uniqueness of the living God. They're paying tribute now to someone who thinks that they are the Lord of all covenants and in so doing deny the existence and the reality of the living God who has revealed himself to Israel from the very beginning. And in the midst of this then, they f the people are genuinely concerned, what am I supposed to do? And we know, for instance, you know, this idea of the coins. Remember that in the temple, they have the money changers, and we say, oh, well, you know, money changers. No, they were performing a service, actually, because they were taking the pagan coins, which could not be used to buy sacrifice to the Lord, and replacing them with, local, with the local coins, with the Hebrew coins that were not blasphemous and were not idolatrous so that they could use the coins that were acceptable to the living God in order to purchase sacrifices to offer to him. So because they could not buy sacrifices with Roman coins and Jesus is saying, those are not yours. Those belong to Caesar because they have his image on them. They're, in a sense, they're religious tribute to him. Give them back to him. Get rid of them. And then when you give them back, you're fulfilling your moral obligation to pay for your government, to pay for your protection, but your hearts and your souls and your minds are free to follow the great commandment of love of God above all things. And I think that we in our society as well are in a way called also to give back to the Lord the fulfillment of the great commandment, that we are called by the Lord to love him above all things. We are not supposed to get caught up in secular, immoral arguments and partisan politics. Now, we know that, you know, the good citizenship, the conference of bishops were supposed to be involved in our public life. We're not supposed to be separate from it and so forth. But involved in it how? Involved in it as agents of good for the sake and the salvation of others. We are not to be involved in it for the sake of privilege and power. We are not to be involved in it for the sake of ideological triumph. We are not to be involved in it in order to protect the rights of others to that to which they have no right. For instance, to own slavery or to take the lives of young children. We may not support that. We may not and still call ourselves Christians. And those organizations, you know, Catholics for Choice and so there is no such thing. There is no such thing. The human person is an integral thing. And I know I had someone say to me, well, I'm opposed to any legislation that uh, only affects half the population. Well, that's ridiculous. How many people of both genders lose their lives in, in, in the abortion holocaust of modern America? It's not a gender-related issue. It's, it's a human issue. We have to turn openly to the living God, and we have to walk with him Give back to the state what we need, what the state needs from us in order for us to stay free, in order for us to pay for our government that gives us services. But stay far away from the dark ideologies which control it and continue to control it at an even greater rate. And keep ourselves, therefore, faithful to the living God, 
faithful to the covenant that he has given to us through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. So